Hello, my name is Raymond Gonzalez, and I took a left at the valley. I know we shouldn't have to scream that we're atheists. You know, we don't have non-astrologers and all that. But with religious people taking over the world, I mean, we can either speak up or be pushed into a corner. I'm proud of being an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen. I call it how I see it. I say it's ignorance, and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims. That's something to be ashamed. I'm an atheist. Coming at you from some Baxter building in Abbotsford, B.C., this is Left of the Valley. My name is Kevin, and my hard, rocky exterior is a sure thing. Joining me as usual is the fantastic team, local superheroes of atheism. She'll force field your ass into understanding history, Nancy. Hey, that's me. He flames on when it's time to be skeptically burned fallacies, Tyler. I think I would be better as Daredevil. <laughs> And he's so elastic when he jokes that it stretches the imagination. Kevin. Oh, is that my cue? <laughs> it sure is. Guys, welcome back. Good to be back. Always good to be back. Yes. I hope you guys had a great week. You know, I was thinking I'd like to steal your job as the host, but there's no way I could come up with that kind of intro stuff. I don't know where you get that from. Oh, <laughs> uh, you know, that's probably my one talent I have anyway. So <laughs> I, I would probably steal your job if I didn't have to worry about the pressure of coming up with that crap every week. <laughs> So, that's good on you. That's one reason why we don't unleash the Tyler every week. <laughs> <laughs> well, guys, you know what? There's, uh, there's, uh, today is a bit of a momentous occasion. You know why? Yes, but tell everybody else. Today is our 100th episode, believe it or not. Woo-hoo. But it's not <laughs> my 100th episode. No, it's not your 100 episode, but it still is the 100 episode of the Left of the Valley Radio Podcast. I, I know, we all have our own, still have our fingers and toes, we still have listeners, I know. and you keep coming up with uh, guests and ideas, and we're pretty good. We I haven't know. been sued or anything. No! Cool. <laughs> I, I think I showed up when you guys were like number 60-something. Uh, you showed up when we were at CIVL, so... Yeah, it was, well... You're still, second, a, you're second, still a baby, second, really. Second show, I think. Yeah, you guys are doing the podcast for... Years before I showed up, so. Well, I wouldn't say years. Well, anyway, it doesn't matter. Uh, Two years, I think. You're, you're part of the crew now, and that's what's important. That's what's important, absolutely. So we're going to have a great show today. We're going to be talking about food waste, but before that, let's do a bit of chit-chat, like we usually do. So, I guess I should almost uh, pull some kind of funeral march thing. Now Obama is going to be out, and oh. Trump is going to be in. Oh. What do you guys? How do you guys feel about that? Oh. <laughs> I can't even... I was doing mm. good until you... Now I'm so depressed. <laughs> you had to bring it up. Every single been. post that I'm on on the internet, somebody's bringing it up, and I thought I could just live through denial. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the, the, con- yeah, the, the contrast between this elegant man, mm-hmm. brilliant, elegant, compassionate man, and his wonderful wife and their great kids... And Trump is just, I mean, the chasm between the two is unbelievable. Yeah. Do you think he's going to fool us and turn out to be not as bad as we think? You know, maybe I'm super naive and being overly optimistic, but, you know, part of me wants to say, well, you know, maybe we're too, uh, we're judging the man too quickly, right? Maybe we're too too rash in judging Trump. Uh, Yeah, of course, he's a bit of a buffoon, but he is smarter than George Bush Jr., Yes, so, uh, <laughs> I have hope. <laughs> you you look at the rants that he does at 140 characters, and you look at the people he surrounds himself with. Yeah, well, George Bush couldn't spell rant. <laughs> <laughs> I like what Obama That's said okay. about his uh, Twitter account. If he can't be trusted with his Twitter account, how do you think he's going to do no. with the country? Yeah, yeah, yeah they said the the nuclear codes needs to be more than 140 characters. <laughs> 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 Good one, point Tyler. But the recent the recent. Uh, the recent, the recent thing is the healthcare thing, right? <laughs> yes, yeah. yes. Dismant- the, the right now the Senate is uh, working to dismantle Obamacare, or the uh, Affordable Care Act. Well, wow. and the problem with Obamacare is that it's it's basically required some people to spend like six hundred dollars a month more than they would have normally. Mm-hmm. So um, I was having this argument with somebody the other day, and I, I posted this really good article from I think it's the Globe and Mail, so obviously a Canadian source. Five key differences between Obamacare and Canadian healthcare, and I think Obama was more going after kind of our healthcare. But I mean, he had to make concessions, right? Yeah. So well, it, it's helping people, and it's screwing other people. 
but it's because it's not single payer. They still have a profit tacked on That's the right. whole health insurance thing. So yeah, it's re- either go all the way or go home kind of deal when it comes to healthcare. Well, Why don't you spend a little bit of your military budget on it? That'd be great. Oh yeah, <laughs> I think what's That's really, always the argument. What's really irritating me um, this week, <laughs> this week. Uh, about the about healthcare is that um, in order to dismantle, in order for the, the Republicans to dismantle uh, Affordable Care Act, they're going at it piece by piece to dismantle it. And Bernie Sanders um, had an amendment. I'm not 100% familiar, so there's a little loosening, not of the facts, but it's just a little mm-hmm. loosening. But the, um, the amendment that he put up about being able to get Canadian drugs drugs. Canada. Yeah. And Big Pharma, as well as some of the Democrats. Seems like who were 15 voting, of them that voted that down. Voted it down because what they don't shock. think that these the standards of drug manufacture in Canada are up to the way drugs are manufactured. Oh, that's a load, that's a load of crap. <laughs> and and that, that they started that back before Obamacare, you know, to really fearmonger about drugs from Canada. And it's just big pharma oh, throwing out BS, you know, to prevent uh, competition and 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 um, you know pricing bids. But that re- I take that personally. <laughs> and, and and Canada, Absolutely. we should take that personally because. Our drugs are to the, those best standards, and in some cases, I understand better standards, stricter standard, or a more I, strict standard than than, than the Americans. Required. Absolutely, yeah. I will yeah. tell. I'll tell our American listeners right now. Um, for example, remember when the, we had the Ebola virus thing mm-hmm. going yeah. on? Yeah, it was, it, it, you cured that Ebola virus by coming to Canada and taking the Canadian vaccine. This is how it happened. Because the Americans never pursued an Ebola vaccine because there was just no profit in it. And if you're an American and you're worried about Canadian drugs, I will tell you one thing. The only difference with our drugs is it tastes like Canadian bacon or poutine. There you <laughs> go. That makes it taste really you good. Know, you know, really good. keeping your employees alive is a profitable endeavor. They just don't kind of see it that way. Yeah. Exactly. They're of little or no use to you, Dad. The, the only objections that the Americans, the uh, Republicans and Big Pharma had um, actually was from the drug purveyors on the net who were selling fake drugs mm. and they're using that as a as a false equivalent yeah. you know to the way all drugs are and that uh, well pe- people have this weird misconception that our taxes are just gouging the shit out of us for healthcare but i, I looked at recent stats and we as a country spend something like 10% of our gdp on healthcare and the united states is like 15% yeah. And their they health, spend more and they get and less. And their healthcare statistics just suck in comparison. And just all these, like, it's like the analogy that I used was like, you eat once a day and I eat three times a day. Okay, yeah, my grocery bill is going to be higher, of course. But I'm freaking healthier mm-hmm. and not starving and getting all these problems. Like, of course it's going to be more expensive. But guess what? It's not. And we don't have 40, 50,000 people dying every single year because... They don't have health coverage. And uh, let's face it, the Canadian healthcare system is not perfect. It's not perfect. Well, no. I, f- I find it's a bit top-heavy, you know, and there's certainly some improvements we can have over it. Uh, but, I mean, it's, it's a huge stretch. I, when I go to the States, I tell my customers in the States, says, you know what, I can't afford to be mean to you because I can't <laughs> afford for you to punch me out and wake up in a Seattle hospital. <laughs> I just can't afford well, that. <laughs> what, do you, what do you pay in annual income taxes? I think my dad said he pays something like $25,000 a year in taxes, but he's also making $75,000 a year. You yeah. guys pay taxes? <laughs> yeah, well, I don't, but I mean, my situation... Come with Kevin, not necessarily My situation's a little different, but they complain. They say, oh, you have to wait a long time. Okay, there are exceptions to the rule. I went blind at 13 years old. I've had 12, 12 surgeries. Say what? Some of them were experimental where they had to fly amniotic uh, tissue out from Florida by helicopter. You had 12 surgeries? I've had 12 surgeries in total. I've had stem cell transplant from my mom, a cornea transplant from a kid who died in a car accident. No wonder you're such a good-looking guy. Exactly. All these different things, and you know what? Zero weight, and it costs me nothing. And then I have American friends who their kid gets into a bike accident and breaks their leg, and the $2,000 bill deducted. Forecast. Well, and, and whatever, pain medication... 
and the time in the hospital and all this ridiculous stuff. Like you lose the ability to work, you you're totally that's it. Oh yeah, you don't. Because HM was not going to cover you anymore, and yeah. you're you're hooped. That, you're in the street. That's the only American argument is oh well, we want to save taxes. Well, then you're a selfish dick because maybe you don't need that kind of money, or maybe you're not sick. But what if you get sick? And what about your kids? And what about their kids? Yeah. Are you? Can you guarantee that your grandchildren are going to be wealthy enough that they never have to use that type of system? Well, if you don't know Trump, yes. But if you're somebody who's not, who's not like him, I guess. Well, yeah. And their, their idea is put your money into this health savings account and pay for your own stuff. You know, it doesn't work. No. I think Michael Moore put it best, filmmaker Michael Moore, when, when he With was comparing Sarah? Canada and the, and the U.S. He says, Canadians live in the world of we. Americans live in the world of me. Well, yeah, exactly. I, yeah. I, think, I mean, both, there, there's pros and cons on both sides of the board. Oh, of course. And you have both sides. And, and <laughs> right. I, and You're that's an expatriate, right? right? That's right. <laughs> But I think that in in the U.S., the insurance companies and the conservatives, you know, want to run the system, which, you know, which makes it unfortunate for people who are trying to keep their health care costs down mm-hmm. and the insurance companies that are trying to build their profit margin beyond all reasonable, um, uh, uh, I would say reasonable doubt, that's not the word I was, <laughs> I was going for, but um, that's pretty much the way it is. When you have insurance company executives that are um, making more in bonuses than a yeah. you know, two than, billion than a block of families yeah. make in a year, it, there's a real pro, there's a way, real program. No, that's way, that's way where the than, waste is. is way in more than a block, pocket. though. We're talking like two billion dollars severance packages and yeah. profits. And, it's, but, city, it's more than what a city makes. <laughs> you said there's pros and cons. I'd like to hear the cons. The cons of which side? Of our socialized medicine, which isn't exactly single parallel Wait friends. Times. The, I, I would say. Well, I, I just explain I, that it's like the exception <laughs> to the rule. You know, all yeah. that—that's not even an argument against socialized medicine. That's an argument to hire more doctors. No, the uh, the arguments would be if you're in that kind of capitalist like American, you don't want to pay for a poor person to so, have to. Yeah, that that's like privatizing the fire department. I don't want to have to kick in taxes so somebody's house burns down. Yeah. But w- what happens when you run a fire department as a profit is you provide incentive to screw people out of money. And there, is, and there is an incentive. There's that woman on the movie Sicko. She was like a medical care, yeah. blah, blah. She denied somebody. She found a way to deny this guy heart surgery because it cost $200,000. And he died, and she got a fucking promotion. Well, this yeah. is going on right now in Vancouver. There's that guy who wants to like have his clinic that does MRIs and scanning and stuff like mm-hmm. that um, to be legalized properly so it's not built under BC Medical or it is built under... I can't remember how He kind of wants to adopt some kind of a, a semi, semi-private yeah. uh, public system. And his argument is that if you open this up, then it'll make competition so the price of an MRI to get it done will will go down that's not true because an MRI machine is costing you millions and millions of dollars and not very many people have that to drop except for people who just want to exploit it and make money off of it so it they could drive the cost up no problem yeah that's like the argument for getting rid of minimum wage either way this is actually something we'll have to to keep an eye on for sure and uh, one last quick thing on uh, speaking of the US and Trump it was kind of fun to see this week uh, Trump call CNN fake news. Mm-hmm. Did you guys see that? Yeah. And the funny thing after that is Fox News coming out and defending CNN. Now, I never, never thought I would see that. No, wow. I think that journalists finally banding together with backbone and realizing you know, that they, they're they going to have to change exactly. the way this, they this deal is, with This with is Trump. maybe the silver lining in the whole Trump yeah. thing. It might actually be outrageous enough that the public and the, 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 and the journalists might actually have to wake up and pay attention to what actually is going on. So, well, CNN is thinking. fake. They have <laughs> because yeah. it, in many ways they have to take um, some lessons from history in that during World War II the journalists looked at Mussolini and they looked at Hitler in a in a sort of a favorable fashion. They thought, oh, they're kind of different. And they built them up. And it was only yeah. after people began to, mm-hmm. to say, oh, well, maybe there's not... There's not, um, you know, maybe they're okay. Maybe there's not really problems with these guys. It was only after 
that that the journalists realized that they were promoting fascism and Nazism exactly. rather than hindsight is twenty twenty. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, let's we got a show to keep going. My dear Nancy, it's up to you. Here we go. Speaking of history. Mm-hmm. Here we go. And this day in history is a roundup of those events and individuals that altered and illuminated the days between January the 9th to January the 15th. Starting with January the 9th, it's Martyrs Day in Panama, but definitely Hockey Day in Canada, which is always a good thing. In 1998, Hockey News selected Wayne Gretzky. Anybody ever hear of him? No, never, never heard of him. Never heard of him. Hockey <laughs> player, I think. Yeah, basketball think so. maybe. You're a phony. Yeah, um, <laughs> they uh, voted him best hockey player ever. So yay, Still is. Wayne. The great one. And in 2015, the Canadian Museum of History was proud to announce that it had acquired the world's oldest known hockey stick. And it's known as the Moffat Stick. It was hand-hewn in the 1830s in Cape Breton, Nova Scotia, from a single piece of sugar maple. So that's all the hockey news for today. January the 10th is traditional day in Benin. And the most important event of the day happened in 1920 when the Versailles Peace Treaty and League of Nations Covenant came into force. And Canada was one of 42 founding nations of that organization. Which Ooh. is what? Can you expand the, on that? The uh, League of Nations. Oh, yeah. That was back in the League what? of Nations. The Versailles the, sounds really familiar. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a town in Europe. <laughs> okay. <laughs> <laughs> but that doesn't actually say what they do, right? The League of Nations yeah, was, yeah, was, was, the was the before the UN. United Nations. I thought the League of Nations was like Captain America. And <laughs> no, those are the Avengers. Oh, to be young again. <laughs> uh, January 11th, International Thank You Day. There really is such a thing as National Thank You Day. And it was and started by Canada because we're yeah. so polite. It was. Yeah, believe it or not. Yeah. Well, it's easy to believe. It's notable as being the birthday of John McDonald, who was the first prime minister of Canada. So a lot of things going on this week. You yeah, know, a lot of Canada, things. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Nothing about I'm sorry, I'm sorry today. <laughs> Just thank you, thank you. January the 15th is Korean Alphabet Day. And in 2001, Wikipedia, a free uh, wiki content encyclopedia, went online and immediately became the favorite reference for everything, whether or not the facts are true or not. We love Wikipedia. Uh, actually, okay. actually, they did a, the Journal of Nature did a study on Wikipedia and checking its sources matched up with other really reliable sources, whether it be the Britannica or medical journals and stuff. And Wikipedia is very reliable, so really tired of all the ad hominems that I run into with Wikipedia. Yeah, it, it's getting better. I noticed that a lot of the, the articles that have citations needed seem to be diminishing, and people seem to be filling well, in the never, citations with with, uh, with, with, with But Wikipedia facts. never pulled back anything because he, what they said was untrue. you got to well, give them that. No, right? they used to suck because they anybody did. could just edit anything, but it's not like that anymore. We're not allowed yeah. to, to use them as a source in universities. So no, so. but you can use their sources as sources. You just click on references. Yeah, there's, just there's still some issues with them. Anyway, yeah, anyway Wikipedia. Alright, here's a great story to round out the week. This is a great story. This is, this is really fun. Probably Texas baseball or something. <laughs> In January 1969, a novel called Naked Came a Stranger hit the shelves by an author whose name was Penelope Ash. So it hit the market and it was immediate success. It was immediate success because it was trashy, badly written, and filled with lots and lots of sex. Yeah. It was it was, the Fifty Shades of Grey of that time? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it was like the same genre as Peyton Place and the novels Bible. by Jacqueline Suzanne. And it was, so it was a great trashy novel. So people bought it and just skimmed through all the rotten parts to get to the, the naughty bits. <laughs> and it was being passed around you know, by housewives and students and, and everybody. It was, it was, they were making a lot of money. The author, Penelope Ash, played it to the hilt, appeared on talk shows wearing low-cut dresses, crooning phrases about the joys of sexual liberation. Remember, this is 1969. And delivering such <coughs> statements as a writer's gut is a, a writer's got to impale his guts on the typewriter. Mm. So she was she was making a big splash. So to no one's surprise, the book sold well with reported sales of 20,000 copies 
by August. And this is, you know, I mean, they didn't have Twitter, they didn't have yeah, tablets, yeah. they didn't have Facebook, all that. So people really read, and that was a, that was, that was a, a, a huge hit. So stories began to leak to the press that all was not as it appeared to be. So David Frost, who was the leading talk show host at the time, publicized that he'd have the author on to discuss the book. So after being introduced as Penelope Ash on his show, 17 men walked out on stage single file as the orchestra played the song, A Pretty Girl is Like a Melody. (laughs) (laughs) 17 men. And the revelation of the true origins of the book prompted more sales with the book selling approximately 90,000 copies by October 1969. And by the end of the year, the book had spent 13 weeks on the New York Times bestseller week. So even though it came out that there was no Penelope Ash, that there were 17 men that joined in writing this book, it became even a bigger hit. Than, than before. It wow. was, oh, it was they not joined only a hit, it was a sensation. They joined in in writing it? 17 men wrote it. It, so was, just the girl. it, it was one of the, 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 the girl, Penelope Ash, I'll tell you about her in, in a second. This was one of the greatest literary hoaxes of all time, and the man who conceived it was a Newsday columnist named Mike McGrady. And he was the one that got his sister-in-law, Penelope, to take the front about who was the author of this book. (laughs) So the the columnist, um, Mike McGrady, was convinced that the standards of literary and artistic taste were plummeting rapidly in the United States. (laughs) Little did he know (laughs) how it comes today. today. Exactly. (laughs) So he was driven down by a relentless flood of media sensationalism that carried it to the lowest common denominator. So he decided to design an experiment to to actually test the depths of American cultural morass. He would commission the writing of a novel lacking in any redeeming features. No plot, no character development, no social insight, and definitely no verbal skill. So Twilight, basically? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there you go. That's got a precedent. It would possess only one feature that could possibly hold a reader's attention, kinky sex. In fact, it would have a minimum of two sex, sex scenes per chapter. I mean, this thing was wow. organized, you know, like a like a like a a, a launch into space. You read this? <laughs> actually, I she read reads it every night. Every night. If the book was a success, McGrady reasoned, it would prove that the American public completely lacked all standards of taste. Yeah, the book is still around. You can you can still get some even some of the original copies. So in 1966, this is how he did it. He recruited 24 fellow Newsday staff members, 19 men and five women, including Pulitzer Prize winners, to help him with the project. So the project was a sexually explicit novel with no literary or social value whatsoever. He provided each of them with a four-page story outline warning them True excellence in writing will be blue penciled into oblivion. (laughs) There will be an unremitting emphasis on sex. The plot of the novel, such as it was, involved a suburban housewife who hatched a plan to sleep with all the married men in her neighborhood in order to get back at her husband for having an affair. So each collaborator took a separate chapter. The group wrote the book as a deliberately inconsistent hodgepodge which each chapter written by a different author. Some of the chapters had to be heavily edited because they were too well written. So they gave the resulting book the provocative title, Naked Came the Stranger. And some of the collaborators eventually began to feel guilty about the money they were making from the deception, and they were the ones who leaked the story to the, to the press. The stuff you learn on the show. Yeah. <laughs> Sounds like that Housewives TV show. Yeah. <laughs> was that called Orange County or something? Was Desperate Whatever. Wives or something? That's it. Thank you. Desperate yeah. Wives. So Kevin would know, of course. Yes. <laughs> so the book subsequently is, uh, inspired a slew of other collaborative novels, many of which adopted versions of The Naked Came, the stranger title in homage to the original. 
1970, it just as a capper, McGrady wrote a book about the hoax, which was called Stranger Than Naked or How to Write Dirty Books for Fun and Profit. <laughs> and in 1975, Naked Came the Stranger was made into an X-rated movie. So there goes the So maybe maybe our listeners should send us an email saying, should the Left of the Valley crew start writing naked books, yeah. <laughs> sexy naked stories to get some funding for this show? Yes or no? Send us an email at just nancy at leftofthevalley.com. <laughs> and just include some science in there. Some That's right. Science. right. And please include $10 for a fever. <laughs> <laughs> and that, dear listeners, brings to a close. Another, I just had to take up the time with that one story because I just love that story. It's just so a great. good story. Well, I got it. Sorry. So that brings to a close another passing parade of interesting, mundane, unusual, and occasionally bizarre events. And now I have to question, are they as bizarre as the <laughs> news from Trump <laughs> last week and people that make up this day in history? Well, they actually had an interesting study where they found that men obviously prefer, you know, porno, TV show, DVD, whatever, because it's visual, right? Yeah. And men or women prefer the exact same thing, but in book form. Because it kind of leaves it more to be emotional and yeah. their own imagination and that kind of thing. So I need to get some of these uh, these books and just hand them out, eh? <laughs> 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 oh, goodness. Thank you so much, Nancy, for this uh, wonderful, wonderful um it was, segment, a fun read. it was a fun. It was a fun read. It really was. Before we go on the break and we go get our guests for our food, uh, for our uh, food waste segment today, let's do brilliant moment. Brilliant moment. Brought to you religion. Oh, that sounds weird. Yeah, kind of changed it a bit. Now, did you guys know? Talk about bad science. Somebody keep it on tell me. You might catch on fire over this. Uh-oh. Did you know that uh, some creationists claim Beowulf? You know Beowulf? Yeah. Yeah. Is an eyewitness account of dinosaur existing with humans. Well, yeah, it was, wasn't it? The stupid it burns, man. Can you give a description of Beowulf? Beowulf is the... Okay, uh, let me read the story here. Recently, geologist Andrew Snurling, the director of research for Ken Ham's Answer in Genesis, there we go, argued that Beowulf, which is an old English epic poem that dates between the 8th and the 11th century, um, is evidence of humans and dinosaurs interacting. Of course, it's a work of fiction, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Louisville Magazine reporter Charles Wolford recounts a surreal exchange between Answers Genesis geologist Andrew Snelling and himself at the Noah's Ark theme park. Uh, he introduced uh, the, um, the program introduced me to geologist Andrew Snelling, who followed Ken Ham in the U.S. from Australia and uh, and for the last nine years has been the director of research for Answers in Genesis. So then he says there were dinosaurs on Noah's Ark, right? And Snelling nodded, right. So then he says, then why are dinosaurs extinct today? He says, dinosaurs went extinct after they left the ark, after the flood. We had an ice age. We had a radically different world. Some centuries weren't able, to, some creatures weren't able to adapt. But most creatures in the world, uh, most cultures in the world, sorry, have some legends about dragons. And there's a dragon in Beowulf, right? <laughs> Uh-oh. Is that what Beowulf is? is oh, yeah. Well, there's a there's a it's a, it's a it's a story about uh, Danes going to a kingdom to because the uh, the kingdom is cursed and they fight some kind of demon and then he he's crowned king and later on he ends up uh, um, siring with the uh, demon witch and then his child becomes a dragon and he's killed at the end. So nothing to do with wolves. It's, it's usually right? the first no, no. It's just a title. Oh, it's it's usually okay. one of the first pieces of literature high school kids are exposed to when they're starting to you know understand what uh, what literature is and everybody hates it unfortunately. <laughs> well, not everybody, but it's it's a it's a barrier to it's, get through. It's scary to think that it would take such a a, a story and. Uh, and this is supposedly <laughs> an intellectually uh, um, cultured man, right? I mean, he's a, he's a geologist, right? And he, why the hell would he start saying something like that? Well, because it, it's just fi- the Bible's fiction. Exactly. Beowulf is fiction. He's keep he's pretty consistent about what he believes. I, I came up with an interesting analogy that I'd kind of like your guys' opinion on. Um, Kevin and I were debating in this atheist versus theist debate central group, mm-hmm. and there's this totally crazy guy in there that copies and pastes from Andrew Snelling and answers in Genesis in general. So what I was thinking, it, 
when you use the example in reverse to get them to kind of think about it is let's say we took only mythicists right and they created their own scientific peer-reviewed journal that has a faith statement that says in order to publish in this journal you have to declare that you believe Jesus is 100% myth otherwise you're not going to publish your stuff yes. clearly that would be biased crap and completely unfair because then it's like Richard Carrier not letting Barterman have his own two cents and vice versa and, and that's not how they do that Barterman and Richard Carrier can submit their stuff to the same peer-reviewed journals just like Francis Collins and Kenneth Miller can regarding the Journal of Nature, Cell, blah, 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 with Richard Dawkins. So mm -hmm. they, they they, they've created their own journals, these creationist journals, which are peer-reviewed. Well, yeah, of course. Uh, they, you've agreed that you've got these faith statements that everybody has to sign. That's just, yes. as, that's just as bad as mythicists doing the same thing. And you know the creationists would be like, well, of course, that's bullshit. It's just a bunch of mythicists sitting around patting each other exactly, on the back. Exactly, exactly. It's the same damn thing. And on top of that, you also have to add, and you know, just because this gentleman here is Snelling, is he's a geologist. He's not an evolutionary biologist. So although you might know much about geology, his his uh, his argument about dragons is worth nothing. It's well, not worth anything more than my opinion. But even why it, are we paying attention to it? Even well, because his it's just funny. Even, yeah. his, <laughs> even his arguments on even his arguments on geology are still a bunch of crap. Yeah. Because sure they, they, they don't actually pass peer review. He just has decided that we didn't know what the state of radioisotopes were back then, therefore the Earth is six thousand years old. Yeah, of course. Even though it would have completely melted it. So I just thought that was an interesting thing to point out and a good analogy, a good argument for people to use against these creationist journals is like a mythicist journal because the creationists hate the Jesus never existed stuff. Yes, they do. Well, thank you very much, guys. And we'll take a quick break and we'll be right back with our guest, Jenny Rustemeyer. Stay with us. Do you know where Saskatchewan is? Probably not. It's in Canada. If you do, you might know a city named Regina. In Regina, there's a studio. And in that studio, there are, at least once a month, a bunch of skeptical atheist geeks and goofballs who get together to do a podcast. We are the Brainstorm Crew, and we're trying to help spread a bit of reason and critical thinking while still having fun. Never taking things too seriously, but still not accepting everything we're told, we go through different topics, exploring them in depth, and often disagreeing. We try to stick to provable facts, and we never trust a myth. That's why we say we're woo-free since 2013. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Spreaker under Brainstorm. Or check out our website, brainstormblog.net. I can't promise you'll always agree with us, but I can promise you'll have fun listening to us. What is secular humanism? Critical thinking. Knowledge is freedom. Freedom from ignorance and its offspring, fear. The BC Humanist Association has been active in the Vancouver area for over 25 years. We offer a friendly and welcoming place to make new friends, as well as free educational lectures. We invite you to join us any Sunday at 10 a.m. in the Oak Ridge Senior Centre. Please visit our website for more details, bchumanist.ca. A Canadian, a New Yorker, and a Southern Belle walked into a podcast, and all hell broke loose. Seriously, though, what happens when we three ladies get together? Well, definitely a lot of talking. And accents. Funny accents. Well, I don't have an accent, but my co-hosts sure do. We mix North, South, and the Great White North together for two hours of pure secular discussion. Nothing is off-limits. From goofy religions like Scientology, woo like ghost hunting and alternative medicine, to hardcore history, hermeneutics, sex, and science, we cover it all. What the heck is a hermeneutic? Well, it's not a guy named Herman who sings falsetto, that's for sure. Join Beth, Ashley, and myself, Deborah, every Monday night at 9.30pm Eastern, and we take you beyond the trailer park and bring the conversation to life. Join us live on YouTube and participate in the conversation via the Q&A system, or catch us later on Spreaker, Stitcher, iTunes, and Nobex. Visit www.beyondthetrailerpark.com for links to the show and our upcoming schedule. Bring your wine and sweet tea and settle in for fun facts and free thinking. We happily wear the explicit tag, though, so make sure to wash out your mouth with something tasty before listening. That's live at 9.30pm Eastern on YouTube. Come give us a like and a share, no matter what type of accent you have. 
And we're back. So our next guest is a Vancouver filmmaker who not only talks the talk, she actually walks to the walk too. She's a snappy dresser and a snazzy dancer. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Jenny Rustemeyer. Hi, Jenny. How you doing? Good. Let's give her some applause. Eh? How about you guys feel about that? There we go. Too kind. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome, Jenny. We're so pleased to have you, especially for our 100th show. You're special, the show's special, so it's good match. Yeah, we've got a bunch of homeless people, and we said, you guys have to clap or you're not getting your sandwiches. <laughs> <laughs> you're so mean. Jenny, for our, our audience that might not know who, uh, who you are, would you be so kind to give us the uh, Reader's Digest uh, version of who Jenny Rustemeyer is? I want to ask you a bunch of questions. I want to have them answered immediately. I'm a filmmaker based in Vancouver, and my partner Grant and I made two documentaries. The first one, called The Clean Bin Project, was about a year-long challenge to live zero waste, and the second one was about food waste, called Just Eat It. So your, your first, your first uh, movie, The Clean Bin Project, which I highly recommend, by the way, to, to everybody, um, give us a, a quick synopsis on what was that about. So Grant and myself challenged each other to live completely zero waste. We stopped buying material goods for a year, and then we tried to produce as little garbage as possible, and whoever had the least amount of garbage at the end of the year won. Pretty simple concept, but actually harder to do than you think. Now this, this, this had to be somewhat tough, right? I mean, you, there is garbage in absolutely everything. You guys, if you actually take a look at the movie, they actually have to take like their Tupperware to the grocery store to get like cheese to put to the Tupperware and all that. That must have been a difficult experience. Yeah, I mean, we stopped buying clothing and things like that, so we really were focusing on the food and food packaging, and once you become aware of it, you just realize it's everywhere. Mm, wow. And there was a point where they were even making their own soap and deodorant and all that, and toothpaste. So, you, you guys still do that? You still keep to that? Yeah, Grant still uses baking soda for deodorant. I sometimes make toothpaste, but usually, um, usually we buy it at the bulk store because there's so many more options now than there was when we were making the film. Mm-hmm. And the latest collaboration you two had was about food waste. Please elaborate on that, please. Max, Grant, and myself, similar type of story. We challenged ourselves to live exclusively off rescued food for six months um, to draw attention to the issue that perfectly edible food is ending up in the garbage. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. That's a great. That's a great. Uh, that's, that's what I meant, right? She doesn't just talk to talk. She actually walks it. No, too. when you see the documentary and visually, you see what the waste is. Mm-hmm. The impact is so much greater than words. I mean, you can read about how many tons of food, but when you see what's being wasted, it makes such. Well, Jenny, you know that, but you know, to the to the viewer and to the consumer, that was that was such a huge emotional impact. Yeah. which is why the, the film is such a big success. So we're going to do uh, we're going to be talking about food waste today, but before we actually get, let Jenny go and release her unleash Jenny and all her facts, let's do something we haven't done in a, quite a while. Let's do a pop quiz. Oh, I knew. Aha, I, you knew I, it. I, I almost <laughs> the felt of that coming existence. before the words were out of your mouth. <laughs> the answer is always C. No, it's not always C. <laughs> so we're doing a pop quiz today, and you three are facing off against oh. Jenny. Perfect. That's good. Four questions. There's nothing to it. All right, guys. <laughs> Not for you. You know the answer. <laughs> That's my uh, privilege as host. I know. Question one. In Canada, how much food value in dollars ends up in landfills every year? Mm. Is it A, $31 billion, B, $12 billion, C, $7.5 billion, or D, none? The wasted food is fed to Godzilla to keep him from eating Tokyo. Oh, how I wish it oh, was. Oh, Godzilla, Steve. obviously. Yeah, obviously. Okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna take um, Tyler's advice. No, I'm I'm going with A because what, oh, what's, okay. popu- what's the population of Canada? Like 30, 35, 30 million, 35 million. Yeah. And was yeah. that the option? Thirty-five million, uh, or was it billion? A was thirty-one billion. Oh, billion. Yeah, yeah these are all billions. Oh. I'm still gonna take your advice, whether you take it or not. <laughs> I, I'm gonna go with C. I'm gonna, you know, it's a seven point five for Nancy. Yeah. Kev. Omicron. Okay, uh, Tyler. What was twelve million? Was that twelve billion, thirty-one billion, or seven point five? Okay, uh, go twelve billion. Twelve billion, Jenny. What's your answer? I'm gonna go with A, thirty-one billion. Mm. She's the queen. She knows. Yeah. Holy. Question two: How many tons of food gets thrown out worldwide each year? This is the whole oh, world. Man. Is it A, five hundred million tons? Is it B, one point three billion tons? 
Is it C, 100 million tons, or is it D, 2 billion tons? B. B, 1.3? Yeah, a. Uh, uh, there's million? no option for a, a hell of a lot. Huh? No. no, no. That's okay. <laughs> B is Shit the highest. Ton, so. yeah. And Jenny, what do you say? 1.3 billion. B. That is Yay. it. 1.3 billion tons. Look at oh, that. This game is fixed. She's kicking ass. She's <laughs> kicking ass. Oh, I only got one wrong. Question three. How many Canadians use the food bank every month? Ooh. Is it A, 350,000, B, 500,000, C, 850,000, or D, just those who have, have oh, sorry, those who have poor food credit ratings? C. <laughs> And the numbers all run, you know, I can't keep track 500, I'm going to say B, but the numbers are growing. So as we sit here, regardless of what number mm -hmm. there is, there's more. Than, the than highest. I'm going with 850. 850? Yeah, me too. Jenny? Okay. Yeah, 850, C. That's right. Yeah. 850, look at that. You guys are kicking ass. Two for three. So how much food do retailers, because retailers throw away a lot of food that they don't sell, and uh, percentage-wise, how much of uh, how much food do they throw away? Is it three percent? Is it five percent? Seven percent? Or D ten percent? Ten. I'd say five. I'm gonna go C. I and Jenny, your answer? D. Ten percent. It is. Uh. Oh, Congratulations, man. Yeah, Jenny defe defeated you guys. Oh, um, she beat me by one. Yeah, that's so right. All the numbers are so. That's so. Depressing, isn't it, Jimmy? <laughs> Just depressing. Oh, so, she's one of those experts. Yeah, yeah. she totally is. So, she's kicking ass. so I, I have a little story and, and question for you here, Jenny. Um, the mother of my children worked at 7-Eleven for quite a while, and they were basically ordered to take the food that you know went expired right away and stick it in a locked garbage can. Yes. So the homeless people couldn't get to it. So. I've been saying this for years, and it seems like the advanced countries like France tend to catch up to my ideas much later on. I said, why not just, you know, put it outside on a table or something like that so people can come and take it and not have to, you know, go through the garbage and that kind of thing. So, and France had recently passed a law saying grocery stores are not allowed to basically destroy food that could be given to homeless people, whether they get sick off of it or not. It's fine. You just leave it out on a table. So... Do you think that would be a, a good solution for this kind of thing? I mean, I think food should be donated for sure. And if organizations are uncomfortable putting it on a table, there's lots of nonprofits that are willing to pick it up. In France, um, that legislation is actually for grocery stores over a certain size, so over like 4,000 square feet or something like that. Now, Jen, Jenny, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but a lot of people are under the impression that if you uh, are a store and let's say you have a couple of dented cans or something like that and you decide to give them away to charity and somebody gets, unfortunately, some kind of food poisoning because it can't happen, that they could be sued. Now, is that true or is that just a, a myth? In Canada, we have Good Samaritan legislation province by province. Usually it's called the Food Donation Act or something like that that protects companies that are donating food that's going to be given to people in need. So there really should not be fear of liability there. See, that's, that's important. I think, and that's worth repeating because I, I bump into that all the time. Companies out there are not giving out the food because they're afraid of being sued. But you, like you said, there's a Good Samaritan Law. Is, can, anybody look, want to look that up? Kevin, can you look that up? The Good Samaritan Law? Let's, let's, let's try to put a, pull something up on that. The Good Samaritan Law. Foodwastemovie.com. Well, the, the benefit of sticking it outside on a table is that it gets eaten, obviously, and you don't have to worry about taking up extra space in fridges and that sort of thing that you have to, have to pay for, right? Yeah. So I do like that idea. It's just... Um, Jenny, uh, have you noticed uh, during your, your movie, um, were you guys bumping into a lot of companies that were really, really uh, unwilling to cooperate? Denied. With 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 uh, the wa the wasted food, unwilling to give out to charity, were they were they uh, looking for excuses? Sure, some companies don't donate, and they usually say because they're scared of liability or because it's not convenient with their schedule. So logistics comes into play, but I mean, really, I don't think those are very good excuses. Mm -hmm. on, on the other side of the, of the coin, I, I agree a hundred percent with with what Jenny's saying. I work with the homeless here in in Abbotsford and. There's a dearth of donations. There's some, but not many. But on, on the other side of the ledger, there 
is an organization called um, uh, Habitat for Humanity out of Moncton. And they have managed to talk Atlantic superstores into donating the food that is either right at expiry date or a little bit beyond. And they're getting food donations from practically everybody in Moncton. Mm. So there's a city that has come to realize we can donate. It's better for us to do that and help people than to throw it away and fear liability, which doesn't happen. So at least there's one one bright spot, and I wish we could use Moncton as an example, mm. you know, for the rest of Canada. Because I figure if Atlantic Superstore is authorizing it in Moncton, there's no reason why Superstore can't do it throughout Canada. Have you run into them, Jenny, at all, and and um, had anything any dealing? With, with them in, in terms of, uh, of food donations? I haven't heard of that actual organization, but certainly in every city and town, there do seem to be some organizations that are working on the ground to collect donations. And a lot of times it's just about building relationships with the people who have the food, with the wholesalers and with the retailers. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And you have to rely on volunteers, I'm guessing, right? Not paid employees that are picking the stuff up or what? Well, you mean if you're the the, the, the the cherry? Well, whoever's going to pick up this food immediately. I'm guessing they're volunteers, right? Yeah, lots of nonprofits use volunteers, but some don't. I mean, we filmed with uh, Second Harvest in Toronto, and they pay all their drivers. And the reason they do that is because they want to have those reliable pickups. So they do have staff. I'm just wondering where that money comes from. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that's quite dependent there. We, we should have a similar law to that of France. I mean, it, did you say that there was... Some type of liable law there, like if 7-Eleven took their food that had just gone past expiry and put it on a table outside and somebody got sick, would they get sued? The liability law is really covering if you're donating to a nonprofit organization that is then going to feed the hungry. It doesn't cover you if you're just throwing food out on the street and hoping that someone's going to take it. Okay, because like we have this discussion on my house where you know it says the milk is best before January 1st, and I'm like... Okay, when it turns midnight, the milk doesn't go bad. It doesn't work that way. You know, like, as soon as it strikes midnight, January, it's bad. No, like, I drink or eat stuff that is a little past expiry, maybe even a couple days. I go based on, you know, smell and texture and stuff like that. If they're handing out free milk and it smells terrible, I don't know, don't drink it. That seems like pretty common sense to me. (laughs) Yeah, best before does not mean bad after. Well, and and a lot of it is shipping food kind of around the world because obviously you have to put this stuff in bins. Now, Kevin, you you want to say something, Kevin? You go right ahead now. I was just okay. Yeah, the Good Samaritan law was more more so for people who uh, who help people like at the side of the street or whatever. Like they they feel that they're in like danger or they're injured or whatever. It protects them from like having any kind of legal like repercussions if they screw something up yeah the, the the first samaritan laws came about because some people were having a hard time uh rescuing other people's uh, yeah. for example if you were trying to do a, a cpr on somebody and you end up injure uh, uh causing injury and they would sue you afterwards as we saw this especially in the states uh then some people would say you know what i'm not even going to get there or go there and and this is why these the samaritan laws came to be and then it transferred into the uh, the charity realm, I guess. Yeah, that's where the. Uh, it's also called Good Samaritan. It was the. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you. Bill little, Emerson. I'll tell you a little story that has to do with with liability. About forty years ago or so, when my kids were little, um, <laughs> we had uh, a friend of ours named Nita. And Nita would take her car to the grocery stores, and she'd have about three or four dogs in there, and she had some old clothes. And she wasn't the most spotless and sanitary person in in the whole world. No, she's looking at me when you say that. Yeah, so she she would go to the grocery stores, and she would ask the stores for their produce and um, whatever else they had, baked goods, whatever it is that they had that was either out of date or it was a day old and they were expecting new produce in. And they would give it to her only because she would tell them, I need this to feed my pigs. And she would collect 
a ton of stuff. And she'd go out maybe twice a week or so forth for her pigs. And actually what she was doing is bringing the, all of that nice produce back to those of us who were on low income and were, you know, having, we, some of us were having a hard time, some of us weren't. But we had food coming out the gazilles, you know, because no. she could go and say, this is food for my pigs when they wouldn't give it to her when she would say, I have people who are in need. Can you can you let us have it? You know, my mother was actually using the very same line, but that's because we were like four boys and actually eating her out of house and home. So, yeah. <laughs> so you lived off this recycled food or old food from restaurants and stuff for how long? Oh, is that for me or no. is that for Jenny? No, that's for Jenny. Oh, Sorry. go ahead, Jenny. Sorry. So Grant and I did it for six months. Originally, it was going to be one. I agreed to one. Um, and then he felt that we hadn't proved enough, so we went for six. Well, and you saved money on your grocery bill, so. But you went to restaurants and asked them for their out-of-date stuff, and they just flat-out gave it to you? Uh, sometimes we asked at grocery stores or at the end of the farmer's market. And in that case, we would often pay a little bit for the food. Um, but then the vast majority of what we found ended up being around the back in the dumpsters at grocery stores and especially at wholesalers. Um, yeah, once we started finding dumpsters that were full, it just, it's very attractive to keep going back, right? Is it true that there is a disturbing trend now that since the, this whole food waste has become a bit of a small movement, uh, that now uh, some of these uh, retailers and uh, wholesalers are actually locking up their bins? Have you uh, bumped into that problem, Jenny? Yeah, we found lots of locked bins, but I don't know if they're locking it to keep people from taking the food or to stop people from dumping other things. I mean, the ones that we found that were open that were in the city, often people would dump like couches and mattresses and all kinds of other garbage in there, and then the company doesn't want to pay for that. So I think, yeah, there's lots of locked dumpsters, but I'm not exactly sure why they're locking them. Well, that's why they should have tables on outside to put the food out on because it's either going to get eaten or just go bad anyway. So. I would also notice in Vancouver that some people, when they took stuff out of the bins, would just leave a huge mess strewn in the alleys that had somebody had to clean up. Yeah, there, there's also a movement of uh, they, they, they call binster divers in Vancouver, where uh, they actually have a bit of a code of ethics. If you go bin uh, bin diving, you actually have to leave the place in better shape than when you first got there. So. That's cool. Yeah, I, that's I think cool. in most cities there are enough groups that work with the homeless that volunteers would. Um, would be available to to pick things up. The things could be. I mean, it's a matter of if if there's a way to do things. There are people who are willing to be able to donate their their time in order to make sure it it comes to pass. Having to throw things away in locked um, bins where people who are hungry can't get at it. It's just criminal. Well, you know, I'd be, it's I'd inhumane. Be, I'd be happy to put a table outside of my place. I'm surrounded by a lot of duplexes and stuff with food. We have a new recycling program coming here in May, at least in Chilliwack. I don't know about you guys, but everything has to be very separated. Like there's one can for organic biodegradable. There's one for plastic. There's one for actual garbage. The one, And you get sued up the ass. It's like a $500 or $5,000 fine if you get caught by the garbage people. Like they're all clear bags, right? So they can see whether it's actually garbage or not. And if you have recycling mixed in with garbage, then you get sued. Yeah, it's becoming quite serious. I mean, I uh, mean there's, there's a very uh, successful little program right across the water here in Mission about the, uh, the, the, they call it the rot box, where you put all your compostable in a separate little container and the city takes that away. Well, the problem is they're only going to show up every two weeks because right now our garbage comes every Wednesday and now they're going to show up every other Wednesday. Mm-hmm. And I've got three kids. Like, we have lots of garbage every Wednesday. I've got four or five, you know, garbage bags and now I'm going to have eight to ten and obviously I got raccoons and this and that. But if I can leave some of the stuff out for people to just take, which I do all the time. I have crappy TV. I stick it outside and I say free. And you know what? It disappears in a couple of days. Well, Jenny, have you, what changes have you seen since the, since the documentary? Um, in terms of food waste, there's really been more of an awareness movement. So we see mainstream media talking about food waste in ways that they never did before. I mean, John Oliver did a segment, like full 20 minutes on food waste, and Tyra Banks was talking about it on her show, and it was on the cover of National Geographic. So it really is coming into the mainstream, whereas before we were just talking about food and local food and GMO food and all those kinds of things, but nobody was talking about food waste. Mm -hmm. 
And I don't know, like, I mean, part of it is due to the film, and part of it is that we just had great timing, and we were able to get swept up in that kind of movement. You, you said you, uh, you did most of your film in Toronto, right? Uh, no, we filmed most of it in Vancouver, where okay. we live. And then we do have some experts from the U.S. So we went to California, we went to Las Vegas, we went to North Carolina and to the U.K. And then we did film some in Toronto, but actually most of those scenes got cut in the end. It's unfortunate, but you can't fit everything into a film. That's okay. Toronto deserves it anyway. But <laughs> in your experience in, in the Vancouver region, I mean, we saw some numbers early on during the quiz. Those are huge numbers. Uh, do, you, do you see a lot of it? Is it very visible or is it more hidden? I think it's usually hidden. Um, it's more visible in the States. It's easier to find food and dumpsters down there. And when we went to the large-scale farms in California, like the amount of food that they're leaving in the fields is pretty shocking. We don't have that same type of widespread agriculture here. Um, but certainly there's food waste all along the food supply chain, and most of it is hidden. Like You don't get to look in the warehouses and in the, in the trucks and see what's happening there. What about uh, organizations like the Gleaners? Which is what? Well, they uh, they go into the, like fields and stuff like that. They collect all the uh, stuff that people aren't going to use or yeah, vegetables on the tail end, and they turn it into soup for like, and they send it overseas. Never heard of this. Yeah, yeah no, we, me either. Yeah, the gleaners are here, and we also had an organization that uh, is not working as much as they did the past couple of years called Farm to Food to Food Bank, where um, the, uh, the the founder of that went to all of the different farmers and said. Uh, will you let us take your ugly, your ugly vegetables and that and, and produce that doesn't mm. uh, fit into regular, um, uh, you know, store requirements, and we can pick that from your fields? And they've got like thirty thousand tons a year of food, and then they turn that into um, a charitable donations, you know, for the food bank and and also for other uh, groups of people here who were homeless and um, you know in the lower end of the. Mm. The, it, the scale. Is, is there a country that tends to be like the most advanced because I look at a lot of different social programs and it always seems to be a lot of European countries especially Scandinavian I mean like you, I said earlier about France passing this law I don't know if those laws exist anywhere else but are there countries that you're aware of that are doing a really good job regarding this that we should maybe copycat or is it just the France kind of thing Hmm. I mean, France is leading in terms of many uh, legislation items. Every developed country uh, still has food waste, and they have slightly different issues. So, like when we went to Amsterdam, what they said is that the the cost of, or the quality of living is so high, they don't actually have a lot of homeless people. So, when they have surplus food, there's not as many organizations that can even take it. Um, and they also had another issue that we don't have here, where there's a real stigma around taking leftovers home from a restaurant like they would just not do that so lots of their campaigns are around you know it's okay to take a doggy bag and we don't really need that in canada because we've kind of gotten over that so i renew my objection to this pointless endeavor informally now and by affidavit later time permitting hmm. oh i do it all, the, all the time i do it all the time huh. interesting yeah, exactly. I just take my food home so, so Jenny, uh, in in, uh, in closing, there, what would you recommend to our listeners? They do to alleviate this problem. Well, first, educate yourself. You got to watch the film. You can watch it anytime on Knowledge.ca. Oh, shameless plug! No, I'm just no, no, go for it. She goes. She <laughs> go for it. It's free to watch. So why would you not? Yeah, um, totally. Talk to people about food waste. If if you notice it, then call it out. Because I feel like. If it's just under people's radar, they don't really realize that it's an issue, and it actually really is an issue. It's an environmental issue, and it's a social issue. We have lots of hungry people in this country, and we have more than enough food to go around, but we need to get it to them. Perfect. Jenny, if people want to find out more about what, you, your, uh, what you're doing and you and Grant and uh, your, your next movies. Oh, by the way, maybe we should ask her that. What's your next project for you and Grant? What are you guys up to? So right now we're taking a break from being in front of the camera. It's a little stressful on our relationship, especially in the edit room. <laughs> so um, we're working on a mountain film where we're highlighting stories from BC with, about other people. So we're really Maybe excited about that this winter. <laughs> um, and we'll probably be, we haven't officially been announcing that, but we announce things generally through Facebook. Excellent. So if people want to find out more about what you guys are doing, where can they reach you? Uh, probably at thefoodwastemovie.com. 
Facebook page. Perfect. Okay, you can't let her go yet. Oh. Do, you, do you guys have any like petitions or anything like that that we can forward on? Because I really want to actually physically do something, maybe put yeah, political pressure involved, on people yeah. to actually do something. Awareness is one thing, which is totally great in itself, but if it's not applied, it's kind of a waste. Pun yeah, intended. So, I mean, locally, I really encourage people to get involved, like get their hands dirty and go out there with a gleaning organization or a nonprofit and volunteer. Once you see what's going on on the ground, not only is it really rewarding, but you're really helping the problem. Um, politically right now, uh, the big petitions are in the U.S. So there's an organization called Ugly Fruit and Veg, and they had a petition against Whole Foods to start selling ugly fruit and vegetables, those things that don't look exactly perfect. And they were successful with that. They started doing pilots with them now, and they've moved on to Walmart. So, I mean, think what you want about Walmart, but a lot of people grocery shop there. And if they can start buying things that are imperfect, that's really opening up the market. So that's where the petitions are right now. Mm, perfect. Boycotts has a history of working very well. So I try to avoid 7-Eleven as much as I possibly can because of my recent experience with how terrible they are with the food thing and how they treat their employees and that kind of thing. Yeah, I do the same thing with Walmart myself. <laughs> wow, they got Chinese slaves. Why do you think everything's so damn cheap? You know, so yeah, exactly. Not I mean, ask your grocery stores if they have a donation program in place. I can tell you, Save on Foods in my neighborhood certainly does not. <laughs> Thank you, Jenny. Thank you so much for your time and uh, your, your candor and in, uh, informing us on this on this uh, subject. Before I let you go, there's one little thing i got to ask you. Can I get you to say, hi, I'm Jenny Rustemeyer, and I took a left at the valley. Hi, I'm Jenny Rustemeyer, and I took a left at the valley. And that was Jenny Rustemeyer and her absent partner, Grant Baldwin. Great interview. (laughs) Those are two extremely powerful documentaries. I would suggest that anybody would uh, profit and benefit. I'd say benefit, not profit. Anybody would benefit from watching watching those two. It completely changes your idea on... Um, absolutely, absolutely. Don't, don't you have them, on? Kevin? Like, own them here? I have one of them. Which I don't... I, I have the Clean Bin Project. Okay. I think uh, you which can I download have. either one of them for oh, Absolutely. Free. Yeah. You, can, you can absolutely see it. Uh, the, the Clean Bin Project, I actually aired publicly for people to see uh, a little while back, uh, and uh, that's how I met uh, Jenny and Grant, and they're, they're a great, sweet couple, both of them. Well, that Where to Invade Next uh, documentary that you told me about with Michael Moore or whatever, mm-hmm. that was one of the things that maybe was not there at that time, but that, that definitely should have been covered. Cool. Well, th- thank you so much, for everybody, for being on our 100th episode, and uh, cheers to the next 100 episodes we'll be doing. Coming up next week, we'll be talking to legendary anchor John McComb from CKNW. We'll be talking about depression, and he suffers from depression. He'll be taking us step by step, I guess, to what it's like to live with depression. After that, we have the velvety voice of Seth Andrews coming at the end of the month. On fe- in February, we'll be talking to Anaya Damdran. I got that right, right? Damdran. Damdran. And we'll be also talking about uh, Michael uh, Michael Smith, uh, about one of his podcasts. And uh, we got some more stuff coming down the pipe for sure. And Heading for 200. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And uh, you can follow us on Left of the Valley. You can follow us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at LETV Podcast. You can send us an email, leftatvalley at outlook.com. We need more hate, hate mail like that one guy sent you. That was great. We you know, we don't get a lot of hate mail. Please really send don't. us hate mail. <laughs> Anything else you guys want to add? No, send us any kind of mail whatsoever. Exactly. Let us hear from you. I guess we'll see you at episode 101. Thank you so much, guys. Until next time. We can reach the conclusion that all non-believers are evil. What a fucked up statement. Do you realize what you're saying? But according to your book, this is how your God made me. Skeptical of anything that contradicts history, denies evolution, hates science, promotes mystery. I'd rather see the truth than to bask in my own ignorance rather alone and surrounded by damn idiots as long as there's a breath in my body you can bet your last dollar i'll be working hard fighting this problem religion is a disease it comes from culture only true on a regional scale science is universal for you to say that horus isn't real but jesus is or zeus thor mithra vishnu you don't believe in them i think the reason is apparent you do what you're told and believe in the god assigned by your parents I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer, an infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it, I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith and unsubstantiated claims, that's something to be ashamed, I'm an atheist.
let me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful But I swear to God, pun intended, I find it disgraceful That thousands of children are raped by priests And since they're holy men of God, they get away scot-free And the Pope does his very best to keep it on the hush Don't wanna affect business, he loves money too much We know that they love the kids, but how the fuck can we protect them While they planning to molest them, we teaching them to respect them the system is broke down, working backwards in the only action of tactic I plan to practice now is to attack them The parties of God's hands are bloodstained Millions of murders by believers And they're all in God's name And let me take a sec, don't mean to sound so hateful But I swear to God, unintended, I find it disgraceful That many atheists are told to be quiet You're not alone, speak your mind, time to let it be known I'm proud to be an atheist, a skeptic, a non-believer An infidel, a heathen, I call it how I see it I say it's ignorance and you just call it faith And unsubstantiated claims, that's something to be ashamed I'm an atheist, atheist, atheist